Yes. Technically, this is a party political broadcast on behalf of the Conservative Party. But tonight, I don't propose to use the time to make party political points. I don't think you'd want me to do so. The crisis that our country faces is too serious for that. And it is our country, the whole nation, that faces this crisis, not just one party or even one government. This is no time to put party before country. I start from there. Of course, there are major political differences between the parties, just as there are between many of you sitting at home. But I believe there are some things which should not divide us. None of us wants to see our country torn apart. Some of the things I've seen on television and read in the newspapers and heard directly from you in factories and shopping centers make me wonder what has happened to our sense of common nationhood and even of common humanity. We've seen strikes called before agreements have ended. We've seen them used as a weapon of first resort, not as the last step after everything else has failed. We've seen industrial action directed straight at the public to make you suffer, directed even at the sick and the disabled. That sort of action damages the reputation of all trade unionists, most of whom wouldn't agree with it. We've seen picketing that threatens to bring the country to its knees, emptying our shops, endangering our farms, closing our factories, taking our jobs. Picketing was meant to be about peaceful persuasion at the scene of the dispute. The result of recent legislation and practice is that today almost any determined group can strangle the country. So here we are, just two weeks into 1979, with some of our towns and cities, especially in the North and Midlands, looking as though they're under siege, with many people, the old and those with young children, suffering real hardship, some even without water, while export orders are locked in and food rots at the docks. Of course, the storm may blow itself out and things may start to get better. I hope with all my heart they do. But even if that happens, the underlying problems will still be there. And if the past is any guide, what's happened this winter could happen again next winter and the winter after that and so on. What we face is a threat to our whole way of life. I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got. Military-industrial complex. A new world order. But we are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostages. It's been time Ah, so what was the uh was he what was the uh, the lady's name? In Young Yu. In Young Yu. And what was the uh, the dude's name? Alexander Urtala. Yeah, okay, so Alexander Urtala jumps off of a building, which you know we're all very sad about after I guess like <laughs> 16 hours of Chinese beratement from uh from what's her name? In Young Yu. 
So I guess Urtala is like a Filipino, a Tagalog surname. Oh, yeah. He did not know what he was getting into. Yeah. So his big mistake was thinking like, oh, well, she's just another, you know, cute Asian person like me. And oh, Oh, like Asians, they're they're like fucking like anime, like, you know, nice submissive. It's like, no, why you graduate? Why you graduate Noatana? How you buy family? How you bring family over? You all know like nothing. You're worthless. You kill yourself. Kill yourself. Kill yourself. <laughs> she's been in, she's been indicted with, on charges of involuntary manslaughter. Jesus, where's this? Mm. This is uh in this is in Boston College in Suffolk County. Suffolk County District Attorney Rachel Rollins announced the indictment. Of 21-year-old In Young Yu. What an amazing sentence. <clears throat> when you consider the history of Massachusetts. Can you imagine, like, you go back to colonial times and you walk up to old John Adams and you're like, hey, buddy, guess what happens in this state, you know, like a good 250 years from now? It's like the Irish have taken over. Yeah, the Irish run the uh, state. Indicting the uh, the Chinamen for uh, berating the Filipinos. Well, that name <laughs> is... Jumped off the roof of a uh, veritable synagogue of Satan. I still don't know what happened, but uh, what, what's funny about this is that the name, it reminded me of when that uh, Korean airliner crashed and burned onto the runway in SFO. Oh, yeah. And we the news well. reporters were slipped uh, <laughs> some behind-the-scenes intel on who the pilots' names were. And they were like, something Wong, we too low. And the news reporters with a straight face had no clue. No so clue the, that these the, were made up. The better up. two ones were Holy Fook right. and, <laughs> and Bing Bang Ow. Yeah, that one, well, that one's a little more obvious. <laughs> but here you go, folks. This is America. God. Well, actually, you know, it's not story, America. Story. I don't know if you remember, but some woman got like... Because the plane split in half or something when it descended, and right. uh, some woman got flung from the plane and like you know, managed to live. Like she fell onto the runway or into the grass, and some emergency worker and like one of those stupid little like airport four wheelers uh, and her over sure. on the way over. Which like you know it's chaotic. You can't. You don't have the best visibility. There's foam everywhere. It's like shit happens. Honestly. <laughs> It's like you should be thankful that you are alive for those extra like two minutes or whatever. It's a freak survival followed by a freak accident, preceded by another freak accident. So it's like it's all a wash. So I feel like we we owe the audience an explanation. What we're doing here is attempting to mix it up a little bit. I don't know if it's working. You tell us. Uh, this is basically uh, just kind of what we, we were do before we actually listen to your show. Feedback. Uh, I promise to never bring up Limp Bizkit ever again. I'm sorry. Someone was really pissed off in the comments about that. Yeah. Well, you know, it's a good reminder of what uh, what happened in the aughts. In the, in the late yeah, 90s. The, but, probably uh, the I most him cringe. Can we, can, we, can we just say that the aughts were maybe the most cringe decade in American terrible. history? I, I was thinking that during the aughts. I'm like, a what the hell of happened? Competition. Yeah. It's like this is Cringe this is always looks cringiest in the kind of medium view yeah i just remember a good way to like examine the cringe of the aughts if you look at 
the way most movies were filmed, it was so obvious they were filmed on like a studio backlot. And the color palette uh, and the cinematography was always cheap, even in major well, Hollywood. If you take a movie like Fast and the Furious, which yeah. to me is, I don't know how it got so popular, but it it is tacky looking. Like the the sets are, I mean, the car selection was bad. I, I can go on. It's just the the casting. Well, of the, the original one. I'll, I'll defend the original. Uh, I, I actually like the Tokyo the Drift franchise. one, I'll admit, but I, I did not. They did, uh, they did a great job. There's a nice YouTube video about um, the particular car selection um, and how they did it with their uh, budgetary and availability constraints because they needed like duplicates of cars for uh, like interior and exterior shots and like different mock-ups. And, you know, there's a lot of, cal- of cars in Southern California, but... Uh, you know, people that would let their cars be rented for a cheaper nominal fee and then like getting cool stuff and stuff that you could modify. It's it's non-trivial to put together until you have like the huge budgets that the latter ones did. Well, I'll tell you what I, I think that movie encapsulates. There's several things about it. I mean, one, it's about kind of the import culture, which I think explains a lot if, uh, if you know where I'm coming from usually. Um, so, we're not doing American cars anymore. It's all sort of Japanese and Korean and whatever. Uh, so that's that's strike number one on the decline of the West. Uh, strike number two was that barbecue scene, that cringe barbecue scene where the all these like nebulous like thirty something people that don't seem to have intact families or nuclear families, but they're all sort of a family somehow together in this like weird. It's about family world. It's a very brave new world version of it though, and they're all kind of of. Vin Diesel, The Rock, they're mixed in every ethnicity possible. Um, and that was that was the odds. I mean, that was like, this is America, guys. Like, we have nothing in common except for what we buy at, at Walmart. You um, can tell that Adam was definitely, like, definitely came of age during the odds because he still says nuclear. I think uh, you can tell <laughs> when people, like, came into their teenage years, depending on how they say nuclear or nuclear. Uh, Half those people are counter signaling, though. <laughs> they start. They start to throw in that extra syllable, and then they kind of stutter. And they're like, "Nuclear, God!" <laughs> Wait, did I vote for him or did I not vote for him? I, I think that's what it comes down to. Who gives a shit? You know what I meant. But uh, yeah, good point, Hans. Uh, I, I, I did. <laughs> I did grow I up in the shadow of the Twin Towers. I'll give you that. that all, and, all and that was the whole side of that was just how bad the tech was in hindsight like the tech was so bad i remember this just everything about it was janky and weird and it was most that was the beginning of the import of tech from right east asia in yeah, mass exactly. everything seemed like it was not built by some a smart person like it was yeah like there yeah there's too much plastic on this thing there's like weird uh fonts on it. It, it it doesn't fit right and then all the clothes the people wear of, like alienware computers and and like the <laughs> the rise of like early Sick. online gaming which was fucking retarded yeah oh my god yeah. it, it, it might be like easily it's going to go down in history as the worst decade to ever befall certainly this country maybe the world well i think i think the well, south park guys you want to talk about bad decades this is my second attempt to seg you guys i know you did a good job the first one. let me make one more point about the odds and why they suck uh watch there's somebody that hates the bands uh the band section you're really really driving it home adam thanks uh 
Well, I mean, I wasn't sure we'd have anything to say, so, but I, I happen to have something uh, to, I guess, your credit. Uh, I don't know whoever came up with this first topic, but watch the America Fuck Yeah videos that are fan-made on YouTube that basically are built upon the song from uh, Team America, World Police, from the guys from South Park. I don't think they get enough credit. They get a lot of credit, but I don't think they get enough credit for basically having the finger on the pulse of what American culture is about. And that movie was, in my opinion, one of the most on-point movies about what was going on then, about America flailing around as the only superpower, not knowing what the fuck is going on. And meanwhile, we're singing songs about hamburgers and baseball. Uh, it was It was perfect. Absolutely perfect. So, enough said about the odds, I think. So, speaking of things that suck, the United Kingdom. I'd like to apologize in advance uh, to our uh, our literally dozens of British uh, listeners uh, for the uh, innumerable errors. There, There's some stuff that is just kind of weird about this where I feel like I'm missing some context, particularly about like British trade unionism. Uh, but uh, we're going to be talking about uh, the, uh, the suckiest time uh, in the United Kingdom as far as everyone sort of consensusly agrees, the uh, the winter of discontent uh, of uh, 78 to uh, 79, the, uh, the lead up and the fallout of. And the thing to understand about the United Kingdom in the 70s is that uh, you can look up any set of economic data about uh, the uh, sort of nominal uh, inflation, GDP growth, their budget deficit, the number of people on uh, welfare, or I believe you guys call it the dole. Uh, <clears throat> but regardless of the data set that you look at, uh, as soon as you hit about 1970 or so, things start to go completely tits up. Uh 1971 inflation hits nine and a half percent. It spikes to 25 percent per year by 1975. It rounds out the decade in 1980 at like 16 percent. Uh, you have, uh, can I ask you how does this contrast with? America, because America was going through stagflation. Oh, yeah, some kind of some of this too. was like global phenomenon as well. Right. Um, it was brought on in a long, in a large part by. I mean, there there's like different theses for what exactly caused the uh, the kind of um, you know general collapse of the world economic system in the 1970s. Everything from uh, Bretton Woods um, collapsing to uh, I mean, certainly the major um, kind of instigating moment was the Arab oil embargo. That was definitely the uh, the kind of uh, immediate uh, proxy. Because um, that was you, the supply shock, the shortage, in other words, that caused the price of, of gas at the pump, effectively, uh, in consumer terms, to not triple. Not just gas, but energy in general. I mean, the UK... Um, at the time was extremely um, reliant coal on uh, coal, right? But oil is used in a lot of industrial processes um, and, you know, for 
uh, of course, for transport, mm-hmm. um, not just of, uh, you know, people from one place to another, but how much it costs a truckload or I believe they call it a lorry load yeah, they call it of, lorries, uh, yeah. of stuff uh, to go from one place to another, how much it costs to power your diesel locomotives, how much it costs to ship things. So like, you know, the UK being an island and not a particularly huge island, it imports and exports a lot of stuff. And that all got dramatically more expensive. At the same time, there is a flood. I mean, this was when uh, you started to have uh, imports from places like Japan and Korea, uh, not so much China at the time, uh, start to actually Hong Kong cause... and Taiwan was where the Chinese uh, were making stuff in that era. But yeah, it wasn't until, right. I don't know, the 90s when it's coming from the mainland. Exactly. Um, so, I mean, British industry... Uh, you know, industry qua industry, like textile mills, steel mills, uh, automobiles, things of that nature um, were uh, sort of in free fall at the time. And you had coincident with this, like British society, like the Marxists kind of make this, uh, this extended point about, uh, how imperialism and the extraction of resources from your colonies allows you to, to some extent, paper over uh, class divisions at home. And they're not totally wrong uh, as far as uh, kind of empirical history bears out. Certainly, I think that in America, you'd see a lot more uh, internal strife if we weren't... uh, stripping resources from the rest of the planet. Uh, sorry again, United Kingdom. Um, but the sort of uh, British society at the time, this is where my understanding of British trade unions kind of gets a little bit hazy because people say unions and they're, they think in the American context of, oh yeah, they're like, you know, used to be a thing and, you know, they're not really anymore, except for in the public sector. But in the UK, um, especially kind of up to the uh, 1979 uh, uh, era, uh, it was absolutely huge. Um, I'm trying to find the exact uh, number here, but it was something like in the, uh, it's like 17 million, I want to say, um, people in trade unions out of a UK population that was not that huge. Well, of, of that, from what I understand, only about 57,000 struck. Please correct me if I'm wrong on that. Right. We haven't even gotten to the strikes yet. I'm just giving some uh, yeah. some background here. I can give a little bit more background. British trade unionism really got started at right after the Industrial Revolution kicked off in Britain. And it was partially import, imparted from the old English guild system, which in many ways was still in effect for some professions and some groups of people, in, uh, especially in uh, the core English territories. Um, but in many parts of England, from my understanding, that were rapidly industrializing, there had not been much um, social development and intricate social networks that kind of allowed guilds to form in the first place. So trade unions became very popular, were seen as sort of a haphazard 
uh, but quick way of organizing labor and uh, accounting for certain uh, social capital concerns. They were pretty much quickly outlawed. Uh, there was the Combination Acts in 1799 and 1800 that made any striking illegal. And you could basically go to prison for striking or have to do several months of hard labor, um, which in the UK could easily mean a death sentence, depending on where and what kind of labor and you were sent to do. Um, and very quickly after that, throughout the course of the 19th century, even though the Combination Acts would get repealed, there were all kinds of like labor unrests as uh, the Industrial Revolution had really spread throughout the country. So well into the 1830s and 1840s, they just started banning uh, all kinds of trade unionist activities and even just uh, trade unions for most professions and most industries in general. Um, that eventually led to the 1871 Trade Union Act, and that was what kind of put trade unions back on the spot. And that was at the cusp of what we might call the second industrial revolution and in uh, the Western world and specifically in um, the UK and the United States. And that was when trade unions got into the major industries, cotton, coal, iron, steel, engineering, manufacturing, textiles, and so on. Yeah, it was a membership by, and like, yeah. so this, uh, by 19, after the 1946 election, where you had uh, Winston Churchill thrown out on his ass, they're like, okay, war's over, Jesus, can we finally have nice things? That was the, you know, it was not exactly a return to normalcy, because normalcy up until that point in British history was like, some old guy like beats you with a cane, like, you know, for sport. Uh, but like, you know, the why can't we have nice things election? We should all vote to have nice things. It was the Labour versus Tory party. Churchill was Tory and it was the Attlee government, I believe, that won yes. power. Yes, and it it resulted in this kind of uh, very rapidly emerging uh, solidified consensus that, okay, we're going to have like not exactly a, uh, you know, capital S socialist government, but we're going to have a very robust social policy. We're going to have extensive government support for trade unions we're going to have a national health service. We're going to have a decent portion of industries be nationalized. Uh, and we're going to, you know, in ca all caps, like ensure nice things for. Do you know our, to uh, what extent the nationalization reached across the economy? Because I, and I, if anybody hasn't seen it, I highly recommend the documentary by uh, Daniel Jurgen, uh, Commanding Heights. PBS put it out, he wrote the original book. But it actually went through this period in, in the British uh, society where they were making, as Hank just said, the decision to basically nationalize and socialize a lot of the uh, economy. Uh, and, you know, things like steel and coal seemed to be rolled up into that, but they didn't go into a specific uh, a full list of things. And so I don't know if you know of any detail yeah, how mean, far it, that extended. It was a lot of... When when they say commanding heights, I forget the um, the publication. I assume some white paper because the 
British absolutely love white papers. Um, this is another weird thing. There's all these subtle differences where, like, like if you say white paper, the U.S. understands, like, okay, I, I understand, like, what a white paper is. It's like some think tank shits that out, like, whatever. But in U.K. context, they also have these things called political parties, but they operate completely differently because their politicians are actually beholden to their political parties so even though they have single member districts, they have a huge amount more turnover of their members of parliament uh, than the U.S. sees in their House of Representatives. Because I guess uh, your MP is just like some asshole that the party selected and you vote for the party because the party has published a white paper that tells you what you can expect if they get elected. And because it's a parliamentary supremacist, more or less, government, if they get elected, they generally deliver what they promised in their white paper. But I assume that like there's uh, some document out there, possibly a white paper, that uh, is the origin of the phrase commanding heights. But what that actually entails is a lot of... Uh, basic infrastructure stuff um so things like steel mills power production a lot of logistics stuff uh a lot of transport stuff so um, the way i think of it is if there's a war these are industries that the government would be mandating quotas and and having heavy heavy regulation of and so that was exactly what you just said i mean it's basically the heavy industries the the automotive transport equipment manufacturing sectors things that will be able to make weapons of war effectively yeah. and i mean there, there's some like uh there's some outstanding exceptions there rolls royce uh at one point was nationalized um the uh, the rover aka yeah. uh, land those, rover those are all transport equipment companies yes yeah. well but that's that's i mean uh, once you start to get beyond you know, the power company. It's not uncommon for uh, U.S. power companies to be owned by the local right. uh, government. Um, but once you start to get into uh, people who theoretically, you know, design products, and Rolls-Royce, you know, they're a huge... It, it's not just the, the car. They also make oh, aircraft engines. Well, most they of make it today is engines. Equipments. Most of their yeah. profits come from the aerospace side, I think. But yeah, yeah, back in the day, historically, it was just the those big luxury swooping hood vehicles. That, well, the Spitfire, you know, if I recall, had a, a Rolls-Royce engine. Probably. So, I mean, they've been industrial for forever. But anyway, that, that's the sort of stuff. It wasn't, it wasn't uh, you know, we've got to nationalize all the department stores. Like you had the, uh, the really old school uh, Marxists talking about they didn't really go into the retail uh consumer level stuff. yeah but i mean there there was sort of that level of basic uh dictation of the uh the economy some and of which was know, already tested to, by to what the, degree uh, like I, sorry i keep asking questions but to what degree was the dictation so in other words like during the war uh in the united states for example like Ford was told, like, look, you got to play ball, otherwise we're going to nationalize the whole company. And so he's like, oh, okay, uh, you can make bombers at you know the Willow Run plant now. And so they were given like 
orders and you have to fill them and we're going to give you a set price and you have a target kind of thing. It's very centrally planned quantitatively, but qualitatively, you know, they they still had some leg room about like, okay, here's some specs, but you can, you can design something that meets those specs. I don't know if like they got that crazy after the war in Britain because we didn't you have know, this honestly, in the United States. My, so my impression from what I've read is that it was, it was kind of the opposite. It wasn't, um, nationalization for the purposes of control and uh, uh, kind of deriving as much uh, value to the government as possible uh, so much as a way to ensure kind of a stable base of employment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, labor. Like, because by by the end of this, a lot of these industries were losing money and that's why they were uh, sold off. Um, the sort of promise of administrative efficiency was the pitch for denationalizing a lot of these things, um, which ultimately, um, in a lot of cases, ended up being true, but did result in unemployment spikes when that happened. But a lot of that, I mean, there was some uh, divestment, um, you know, from the point of nationalization up to, um, I think, you know, by the end of the uh, the Thatcher uh, era. Uh, but my, yeah, that, that's usually what happens in these sorts of situations. Like they're not, uh, they're not nationalized as a, uh, a punishment. It's almost like now you get to, uh, be on the, uh, the public dime. Well, the thing about them losing money that surprises me is if, and they used to do this, um, in other countries like Italy used to have, uh, they were famous for devaluing their currencies to keep their, their exporters competitive. And they can't do that anymore with the Euro, but they had some way of basically keeping the companies afloat on paper at least. But in the British case, I don't know what they're doing. I mean, how are they losing money if like they're the monopoly? Like, can't they have a captive market? Can't they have tariffs? Do they not have tariffs? Were they importing everything and then still having these national companies basically as just jobs banks and they weren't they weren't allowing them to make enough money to to stay afloat? Uh, I mean, why? The UK has always been. I mean, at least since the Industrial Revolution, they've always been kind of a uh, interconnected uh, economy. There was. There is a whole series of micro crises um, through the 60s and 70s, uh, I mean, really up until today, about precisely what the relationship is of the United Kingdom to the uh, the European uh, kind of increasingly integrated economy, which was another source of economic instability. You had uh, char- based Charles de Gaulle uh, twice vetoed um, the uh, the UK's accession to the uh, the European Common uh, Market, um, basically uh, prevented them from joining the uh, what would later be the the eurozone. And I realize we're we're conflating a lot of things that are really technically different, but it's like those European chaps, as it were, versus like us UK blokes. Uh, I, I do want to add really quick that. The nationalization, uh, this is from Nationalization of British Industry by Mary E. Murphy at the, at Los Angeles State College. But she mentioned that, um, I think you might, you might not have mentioned that the Bank of England itself was nationalized. Um, the early telecommunications industry in Britain was nationalized and civil aviation was also nationalized. But what's interesting is that labor had this 
bigger plan that was kind of upset um, by some of the election cycles that would kind of happen after the post-war period. Um, they also wanted a nationalized water supply, minerals, meat wholesaling and cold storage, sugar beet production, and sugar refining. Sugar beets. There was a whole... These are all like, place. you know, key... Like, if you think about what was rationed during the war, this is right. all stuff that people are like, I have not had... I have had one banana right. in the last decade. Let's nationalize all the goddamn bananas. I want a banana. Let's make sure everybody has an equal share of bananas. Let's just buy a bunch and divvy them up. I want a banana. I do not want the markets. I don't want a banana future. I want to vote for somebody who will right. give me a banana. Yeah. You can see how the politics of this works, like very like one-to-one. -one. It's like, ah, I want this. Therefore, government well, ensures it for me. And this is why it became popular. It's also worth noting that this is around the time when the influx of guest workers from the Commonwealth, the wider global Commonwealth. It started began. with the um, the Jamaicans and people. So like yes, that. It, it, it it was South South Asians and Car and uh, people from the Caribbean were basically introduced yeah. into British cities. Uh, metropolitan centers, if you will. Yeah, this is the lead up to the Rivers of Blood speech. Yes. And what's interesting about that dynamic is that in the 50s and 60s, the trade unionists um, were staunch supporters of people like Enoch Powell and, and people like many of the uh, kind of resurgent British right in that era uh, because they were quickly seeing many of the gains they had made in the various trade unionist disputes, um, which went, you know, which was basically a 200 something year history in the making by that point, uh, since the beginning of the industrial revolution and maybe even longer going back to the old, uh, you know, Elizabethan and 17th and 16th century struggles of the British working class that Charles Dickens writes about. Um, you know, they were concerned that many of these immigrants were basically being placed there to shore up um, uh, labor demands, uh, market labor demands, not labor party demands. And that basically would mean what everyone knows happens is a lower a lower standard of living, lower wages. And I think that what you can start to see is that the trade unionists uh, supported Powell and by what the era we're getting to, by the 70s and by the winter of discontent, their livelihoods had dilapidated so thoroughly, uh, almost in concordance with the more gradual and gradual introduction of various third worlders into Britain to sort of uh, keep the trade unionist victories against British industry down. It yes. seems that 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 you know, like the the energy crunch uh, that happens in the '70s that affects the United States pretty acutely, but also Britain, is exacerbated in Britain by the trade unionists uh, flipping out for a, basically an entire decade over the oh, fact yeah. that many of the gains that they had made, especially over the prior hundred years, were being thoroughly erased through um, uh, very pernicious means of essentially replacing them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And not only that, I mean, we talk about in the current context, uh, it sort of depends on uh, this used to be a, uh, a bigger 
point of contention in the uh, the aughts, um, the uh, the decade of cringe that we previously discussed. But the UK was in such dire straits by 1976 that they actually had to take out an IMF loan uh, <clears throat> of uh, 3.9 billion. Uh, I guess that's in dollars. So, um, you know, a couple billion pounds or whatever uh, that accompanied with it, uh, you know, the typical conditions that the IMF attaches uh, to those loans, which people, you know, complain about uh, in the context of Argentina or what have you. Uh, But I mean, this is the United Kingdom. It was, you know, 30 years prior uh, that they were theoretically part of sort of a world-dominant uh, coalition. But the conditions of that loan were for them to drastically uh, cut their budget and raise uh, their internal interest rates, which had a real effect of, you know, not... If you look at the UK budget at any period since 1946... They're not spending a lot of money on, you know, Imperial Star Destroyers and, you know, the... Uh, well, I think the they have, like, a aircraft carrier now. Yeah. Well, kind of, but they forgot to they forgot to budget money for the planes to fit on yeah. the aircraft carrier. So they're, they're having to figure out how they're going to w- swing we'll, that. I hope we'll get to Thatcher, but one of the big things, because she came in, you know, in response to this uh, winter discontent, one of the things that her government was pushing for was having this nuclear deterrent and a lot of that had to do with basically slimming down their forces to the bare minimum (laughs) because they couldn't afford it uh but using nuclear weapons to compensate for that yeah which is like a well that's a big digression like thatcher uh, defense policy is way out of scope but the point is that if you have budget cuts in 1976 uk given the state of their budget that means a lot of social spending gets cut that's really the only thing that you have to cut and in conjunction with the uh the massive inflation that they were undergoing there was sort of a series of uh, strikes in the early early 70s that was followed by uh, a negotiation and the interesting thing this is one of the reasons why the british state uh, sort of uh, promoted trade unions at various points and why other um, uh, countries like um, for instance germany uh, have uh, promoted trade unions in various guises is because it, it gives you somebody to negotiate with. You don't have a just an angry mob outside. You don't have just all the guys at this one particular factory. You have theoretically uh, a guy from the you know, electricians union who speaks for all of the electricians. And if they get butthurt about something... They don't just stop servicing all of your transformers. You talk to the guy, and you can work it out. Yeah, in in Germany, it's it's uh, mandated. Uh, if I'm I'm not a lawyer, so if if someone knows the correct term, please insert uh, where I just use mandate. But it's it's mandated effectively by the government that 
at at least large companies, there will be a labor union official at the board of director level to actually make decisions for the company as a whole, including the labor people. In America, it's like, look, you're lucky if you, you get a meeting, but it's, um, it's not required in America. And in the UK, it sounds like they're trying to do something like Germany. Or at least they yeah, were. it wasn't it wasn't necessarily on like a board ownership level, but it was sort of a government interaction level. There is a organization, the Trade Unions Congress, or I think technically it's the Trades Union Congress, similar to the uh, you know you go to uni- you go to college to study maths. It's these little differences that really throw me off here. Yeah. Um, but there is a uh, semi-formal agreement um, with the trades unions uh, that uh, pay raises are going to be kept uh, below 5%. Um, the idea being that it uh, would control inflation because they were still under kind of a pseudo-Keynesian paradigm where... Uh, uh, wages are somehow contributory to inflation. I don't. I don't want to go like real, real economics autism hours here, but it's intuitive. If you pay people more out of thin air, more money will be flowing through the economy in some sense, and prices will go up. Maybe that's not really the current interpretation, but whatever. That's what they are thinking at the time. Uh, and also that this would be kind of a uh, an example uh, to non-union employees. And this is this is kind of like uh, if you talk to uh, talk to some boomers who are alive in the seventies uh, and ask them if they have a, a vintage uh, whip inflation now button uh, that they can uh, they can maybe display for your edification. Um, so this kind of like. Uh, attempt at social pressure to not raise prices, which is is really just completely bizarre um, from uh, pe- like anyone's perspective. Because like people people don't naturally raise prices. It's a lot. Of, it's a huge pain in the ass to be like, oh, I used to charge a hundred dollars for this widget. I'm gonna just charge a hundred and two because whatever. It's like, no, I need to raise my price to 102 because all of my costs just went up. And if I don't raise it to 102, I'm not going to make any money and I'll have to lay everybody off. Like people, people raise their prices or they raise their demand for wages because they have like a good reason to in general. Mm-hmm. That might be sort of, you know, every year. Uh, if you're in certain industries, it's like, ah, where's my cost of living? Like, you know, oh, I, I have more experience here, so I'm worth more, whatever. But that's usually nominal. Uh, the idea that when you have an inflation rate of 25%, that you're going to ask people to restrict their wage demands uh, to 5% for like mass solidarity or well, whatever. it wasn't just it's... asking. There were penalties to the companies if they raised it more than five. Right. Yeah. There. Yeah. So, 
there were a series of of sanctions that I guess I mean mostly revolved around uh, government contracting. Uh, on the other hand, it's it's like okay, so I mean you're you're talking about effectively imagine what would happen to your company if you're like okay everybody is getting a fifteen percent pay cut next year. Like, yeah, we're, I mean, we're doing fine, but just you're like, the economy is bad. So your wages are getting cut by 15%. It, it depends. I mean, if there's nowhere else for the employees to go, they might take it. I mean, the funny thing about this that I, I just cannot help but keep thinking of is the contrast between Anglo culture, we'll include America and, you know, all the colonies and that, and the UK, obviously, uh, and East Asian culture, uh, at least the one I'm thinking of, which is Japan, because uh, Koreans strike like crazy. But in Japan, especially after the, the sort of lost decade, which is spilled into the third decade at this point, uh, after their economy sort of peaked in around uh, 1990, they've been um, they've been getting used to the idea that they're not going to get a, a, a pay raise, and so they will very often, as a as a as a whole, as a company, take an across the board pay cut. It's a, it's a very common thing in Japan to do that uh, because they have an environment that is deflationary. It's the opposite of what is going on uh, in this period of UK history whereby prices in Japan are, are falling because population's going down. They're not as competitive as they used to be against uh, their competitor nations for exports, especially from Korea and China. And so they're they're just not able to make as much money. And so this is a thing. It's a cultural thing. Now in the UK, I don't know if it's like the welfare state or just the sort of uh, laziness or imperial overhang or whatever, but they seem to be, uh, for lack of a better word, a little bit more greedy. So it's, it's not necessarily like it's an automatic, you know, homo economicus behavior. It, it, it's a cultural thing as well. And in a, in a historical one, like that, what's the context, what's the environment like? But you did have companies that were doing just fine that could private companies that could afford to pay their workers more. Their workers are demanding more. They're, uh, they don't want labor problems. I mean, if you're a big industrial concern, Imagine, uh, given how long your supply chain is and how much capital you have invested in your equipment and what all depends on what, it's really, really easy to have a relatively small group of people even cause your entire industry to just become completely unproductive. And that's something that can even emerge not as a matter of you know, the trade union decides as an organization that's now the time to strike. Like, if you piss people off enough, they'll just start screwing with you. And that's uh, <laughs> that's sort of what happened. Uh, so Ford of Britain, um, Ford does have a UK subsidiary. Um, at the time, I believe they produced a lot of uh, kind of commercial vehicles. Um, yeah, they're they're... I don't know if today they're as big as they were. I'm sure they're smaller, but they, they're a big concern. I remember actually sitting on an airplane one time 
uh, with a, a British uh, family, and I was talking to the son, and he was like really into cars, and and so I was asking him like, okay, what's a common car in the UK? And he's like, eh, it's a it's a Ford. Uh, Whatever they made, I, I can't remember what it was, but it was like a specific car for the UK market, uh, and that was like the car. Uh, so yeah, it was it was you know substantial, I'm sure. Yeah, they um, uh, yeah, they they had they built like their own passenger cars, commercial cars. Um, I'm not enough of a car nerd to delineate which models they rebadged versus made versus what was just commercial. But they were doing well. I mean, it was a successful, uh, successful company in their local context, and they could afford it. Uh, they could afford to uh, actually, you know, pay their workers at least, you know, uh, keeping up with their living expenses. But because of all the commercial vehicles that they made, they were a huge government contractor. So they offered uh, essentially the 5% that the uh, UK government at the time was uh, strongly requesting uh, that the private sector offer. In response, about 15,000 Ford workers did a a wildcat strike, uh, which uh, is sort of a wildcat strike in the context of uh, labor stuff is when you do not have uh, union leadership uh, formally involved. Um, it's not necessarily a distributed situation because you do have uh, social networks. You might even have union officials on kind of a uh, an unofficial uh, basis, at least at a low level. Um, but 15,000 uh, Ford workers uh, went on strike and uh, they subsequently kind of uh, internally legalized it uh, and uh, <clears throat> made it a official uh, you know, Ford Transport and General Workers Union strike, uh, growing to 57,000 workers um, in uh, kind of late uh, 1978. So that, that included other companies, right? Or just Ford? Uh, I think that's just Ford. I, I think, um, from I, think what was, I, understand. I think it was others, but uh, okay, I, I there might remember. be like contractors, or um, that could be all of the people in the transport and general workers union, like which would Va- be across Vauxhall other companies. Is another British make of a, of a car. They went on strike, and by the way, it was a Ford Escort. What I was trying to recall from that conversation with the young ah, man. That's a good car, Ford Escort. Yeah. yeah. So eventually, as a result of this, Ford is like, all right, fuck it. We'll bite the bullet. We'll accept the quote unquote sanctions. And we're going to bump our uh, pay offer to 17%. The workers are like, all right, see which way this is going. Uh, We accept. So this is a pretty big, I mean, this is, this is a, 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 sort of consensus emerging where sort of what the government is trying to attempt um, by having this campaign of we're going to limit it. We, you know, whenever you see a number like five or 10, that's what, that's what I call a suspicious number because it's like if something derives 
very plainly from the number of fingers that you have, either on one or both hands, then it's probably just made up. It probably sucks. It's not accurate. And eventually people figure this out. And there's a damn bursting effect. And they realize, this is all bullshit. These other guys got this. Why can't we get this? So you have internal strife in the labor uh, party, which was in power at the time, where, you know, why aren't we allowing the workers that are theoretically our constituency uh, to uh, negotiate for higher wages? That seems like kind of a, a no-brainer. The labor government in parliament isn't that strong uh, because they um, had sort of been decrepit throughout the 70s. There was a lot of turnover at this time. They're in the coalition uh, government that wasn't even really uh, operative anymore. Um, they were in a pact with the Ulster Unionists, which are, at the time especially, were just kind of psychos that nobody wanted to be associated with. Uh, so they enter negotiations, and they're just kind of desperately clawing at this is a this is the uh, the. Uh, I believe the movie is uh, in the loop, and the uh, the television show is the thick of it. Um, both of which I highly recommend. But if you watch these shows, uh, they kind of uh, give you a feel for how uh, government policy uh, is enacted, mostly by accident, uh, in contexts uh, such as this. But Eventually, the government uh, kind of ineffectually uh, fails to result in a uh, actual settlement uh, and instead announces that, okay, we're going to sanction uh, Ford and the 220 other companies by this point that had followed their example. So by this point, it's, it's a shit show. Basically, they thought that uh, they could maybe nip this in the bud uh, if they uh, if they actually attempted to call what was not ultimately a bluff, but maybe they could pretend was a bluff and maybe just kind of stop things here. Gentlemen, 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 let's be reasonable here. It's uh, omni shambles, as they say, uh, I believe, in the United Kingdom. But this uh, this fails drastically. They have kind of an internal rebellion uh, by their uh, own uh, labor MPs um, for various weird intra-party stuff, um, as well as this actual issue. And they uh, they walk back their uh, their sanctions. So the effect of this is that. Ford kind of initiated the dam breaking. Other companies followed. The government attempted to punish them for this. They then saw what a shit show this was going to be, couldn't come to an internal consensus, and then decided not to sanction them. And so now it's like, well, shit, there is nothing stopping anyone from doing anything. 
so this is when everything starts to uh, starts to hit the fan, and when you enter the proper uh, sort of winter of discontent. It's uh, the 28th of November uh, that they enact sanctions, and by uh, by December 13th they they walk this back disastrously which this is a this is an interesting thing i find also about uk politics they because they have parliamentary supremacy they do stuff and it's really interesting when when you have a government it's elected and it does stuff even like huge constitution changing upend the entire fabric of british society and 500 years of governance or whatever. But then you also see situations where the government just changes its mind. And it's like, yeah, we're, we're going to do the opposite of that now. And that, that doesn't happen in the U S really. Well, I, there, I, I don't, I don't have a huge poli sci understanding of how this might work, but I do know that the British government is fundamentally different than the way the U S government is structured in that they have, a prime minister that is elected from the, the the reigning party in parliament, and so there's there's less sort of a check against what the executive is doing. They're they're more aligned oh, yeah, with, yeah. with Congress, in in other words. So that that would yeah, imply that's, that's they the could point. do this quicker. I mean, in the in the U.S., you need like, <laughs> I mean, you need all of these representatives who, although they have a like a party label, is all that it is. In the U.S., um, political parties are not really allowed to determine their membership. Like they, it, the Republican Party cannot kick you out of the Republican Party. And th- this is federal <laughs> law. You can run. They can ignore you, but yeah, they can't. Kick you yeah, out. they can ignore you. They can be like, "Oh, you're not invited to this gala or whatever. We're not going to fundraise for you or whatever." But you can run for office as a Republican with whatever platform you want, with whatever the Republican Party thinks of you, and. If you win the Republican primary, which because it's a state election, uh, even in the even in the presidential context, it's like an individual state by state election. Like if you get the number of signatures that's required and you're on the ballot and you win the Republican primary, which is a a general uh, election in which anyone can run, even as a write in candidate then you are the Republican Party nominee for whichever office. And if you win the general election, then you're the, like, you know, theoretically Republican representative from whatever. In the UK, it does not work like this. As far as the UK is concerned, every political party is sort of like a private club. And... They can say, yeah, you're not in the club anymore. We didn't like the vote that you made on uh, whichever bill that was essential to our platform. So you're ejected. You still get to keep your seat until the next election. But then the next time, if you really want to stick in it, that's fine. But uh, you are no longer 
the conservative uh, the conservative candidate for MP. We decide who the conservative candidate for MP is. So the result of that is that, uh, as I understand it, there is still a notion of constituent services because it certainly doesn't hurt on the margins. But if it's a situation where, uh, you know, the the conservative and labor parties have drastically different visions of governance, there's not a thing like in the U.S. where, well, he might be a son of a bitch, but, you know, he uh, helped my brother-in-law get his VA benefits or something. Um, there's at least a lot less of that. So party dictates that to a, a uh, much larger degree, which explains why they have uh, such a higher swing I mean, in the 1979 election, there was like an 8% or something swing uh, of uh, seats, like 8% of uh, of seats uh, switched hands, something like that. Oh, 5.2% swing from labor to conservatives. We're getting be, ahead. It, it should be kind of just stated that the, the, the massive amount of political turmoil throughout this decade, I think probably, if not exacerbated the crisis, it definitely allowed a lot of these trade unionist leaders to sort of run roughshod over any government that was barely in place. Because basically, it seems like what was happening was that, you know, some kind of barely functional government would be formed, the trade unionists would outsmart them, and <clears throat> critical public infrastructure and, and uh, economic services would fall apart immediately. And, you know, a new election would be called and a new party, maybe a combination of labor and liberals would come in and they'd get outsmarted and the conservatives would try and come back in and they get outsmarted. So the decade, you know, became so abysmal from an economic standpoint, I think purely because once there was a sign of trouble, political turmoil sort of um, created this feedback loop of problems. I can't really think of any other particular circumstances where this applies in the world, but it is interesting that this feedback loop of trade unionism sort of outsmarting whatever British government was barely in place for a year or two, and then managing to further dilapidate the economy, and then managing to use that to their advantage in the public sphere to then create, you know, basically help create a new weak British government that they could then extract more concessions from. I mean, it, it, in America, it's never been as powerful as what we're talking about here with the UK. But there were periods in the 50s and 60s where the president of the United States had to intervene in strikes. I mean, Truman and Kennedy both had to do that. Uh, Truman, I think with the steel workers, and I think maybe even again uh, with uh, the same union with Kennedy. Teddy Roosevelt had to, had to intervene in several minor strikes, which is interesting in that, you know, basically what precipitates part of the, the winter of discontent and just the entire 1970s for Britain is a minor strike coinciding with the oil crunch. And, you know, when that happened in uh, Teddy Roosevelt's administration, he basically dragged the, the head of the miners and uh, the mine owners into a room and said, you're going to figure this out by, I think he gave them a timetable of 72 hours and said, you know what, we're just going to take it. 
and we're just going to nationalize it. We're going to reopen it and we're not going to have any more problems. And, you know, I think that he was also fairly tough on the miners and basically threatened to have them all replaced if they nationalized it and have yeah. just new miners brought in. Like it was very clear and cut. In the UK or in the US context, I mean, it's <laughs> US and UK labor policies, especially when you're talking about different times, uh, there's there's a lot of distinctions to be made. There, there's a real temptation to try to copy paste either, you know, whatever uh, kind of bullshit heritage foundation American Enterprise Institute like, oh, the unions just you know, sitting on their butts trying to drive up prices for the working man uh, onto one context or another, but it doesn't really work. I mean, honestly, I have the I have the most sympathy, like anybody who, especially given 1910s technology uh, and safety, goes down into a several uh, hundred foot hole in the ground uh, in uh, in West Virginia to uh, yeah. dig out a living. Yeah, uh, I have I have an incredible amount of sympathy well, for I'll, them. It's, I'll a, tell it's you, a very uh, tough job, and it doesn't. It's not really that much easier today. Yeah, as I've transitioned out of the white collar world into working more with my hands, I still do, you know, things like this where I'm basically working on a on a computer. But the um, the experience of putting your body through not just like occasional, but just a daily grind for, and they were working more than eight hours, you know, during the Industrial Revolution per day. It was twelve hours or more sometimes. It really takes a toll. I mean, your joints start suffering, your back especially, usually that's the most common one, your skin, um, your lungs if you're obviously underground. These things are real, and I felt them myself uh, to a very small degree just doing you know personal projects and things like that. But I do have a lot of sympathy for these guys uh, after doing that. Uh, it's a real yeah. thing. And, you know, there's it's, it's understandable why, it, you know, inflation being that high like it sounds you know inflation it's very abstract and in other contexts i'm pretty sure i've made fun of the actual concept because it if you want to actually have a number for the inflation rate in all caps you need to decide how you're going to aggregate all of the individual yeah. prices of all of your individual goods and it's difficult to actually do that in a sensible way. Um, whatever number you come up with is kind of an approximation. But the important part is that people's standard of living is actually going down. And when people say when people say Europe, there there's immediately connotations that come to mind, um, and. Sorry, Brits. I'm just going to lump you in with that. I know it's kind of a tenuous relationship right now. But if you look at the concrete standard of living in most of, you know, enlightened topless Europe, uh, it's in a lot of ways lower than the United States. For instance, uh, the quality of the housing stock, uh, the weird... You know, you have separate hot and cold taps. Yeah, even the water uh, infrastructure is very dilapidated. Compared yeah, the, to... the lack of air conditioning. Like every time there's a hundred degree heat 
heat wave in France, which is, you know, like twice a decade or something, just hundreds of people die because there's no air conditioning in the whole country. In the U.S., you can be in like an extremely uh, most of the year pleasant temperature uh, and you still have air conditioning in some place like, you know, San Jose or something. Uh, well, it's interesting in the context of that, like thinking of the population of, you know, southern Arizona or, or even, you know, the majority of the south, Alabama, Mississippi, South Carolina, Georgia, you know, if there was no AC in Atlanta every summer. How many people would die on an annual basis? Three, four hundred. Yeah, much more than that. Atlanta. Yeah. Hmm. But that's not just, I mean, if you look at the relative prices of things, uh, it depends on exactly what you're looking at. But, you know, the price of uh, even things like the price of food, like the UK has imported a lot of its food supply uh, ever since the, the mid 1800s, I believe. And that adds a certain amount of cost to it and it makes things run at a premium and so uh, it's easy for people's standard of living to kind of drop to unacceptable levels when you have things just getting that more expensive and your wages aren't going up like 25% inflation is not, it's no joke. And that it doesn't happen either in a nice, neat, like integral curve where things cost a couple more pence per day. It's like suddenly your standard, uh, your standard grocery bill is now like 20% higher because they did it all in one lump in June. And it's like, wow, I'm actually going to have a problem making my family budget this month because last month it was the uh, the rent or... Yeah, think about the rent. I mean, that that's probably the biggest expense any family has these days. That would, yeah. uh, that would really curb your ability to survive. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, when they're asking for a pay raise to match inflation, it's not unreasonable. So... After the Ford situation, uh, the dam breaks, breaks, uh, and the the lorry drivers, uh, not the truck drivers, uh, but the equivalent of uh, what we would, uh, I guess, um, refer to as the Teamsters. Although I think there's arcane distinctions in what exactly the Teamsters do. Uh, versus uh, this particular uh, union. I'm not a, a labor arcanist, uh, but uh, basically the uh, the lorry drivers uh, end up going on strike. Uh, the <laughs> uh, This causes a shit show because, again, the UK imports a lot of its oil and they don't have a, I mean, effectively all of its oil at this point. And they don't have pipeline infrastructure so if you want to transport oil which is to say eventually gasoline or diesel across the country you got to put it on a truck and drive it from the port to the petrol uh, i believe you call it uh, station 
and eventually into somebody's tank. And the same is true uh, by extrapolation once you start talking about things like food deliveries. It all happens by truck, more or less, when you're talking about uh, kind of a very dispersed, uh, like fairly dense and dispersed, uh, which it sounds like a contradiction, but really isn't. So look at the Google Maps of England. It's uh, You've got a lot of just weird little concentrations in places that aren't served by rail, and you've got to truck in everything. So this is this is starting to become a problem at that point. Uh, they threatened to bring in uh, the army to uh, drive the uh, tanker trucks. It's honestly never a good, uh, never a good idea uh, to have the military do anything. Really, uh, this is always kind of a, a strike-breaking thing. Um, that, oh, well, we'll call in the Army to be, or the Air Force to be air traffic controllers, or uh, I'm trying to remember the, uh, the instances that I've personally experienced. A lot of them were airline-related. Um, there was a, a postal uh, union strike um, where they uh, had the Army delivering mail for a short time. It's like, look, Private Smith does not give a shit. He he might even have sympathy for the, like he sure doesn't like being called up. It's like he doesn't know where this is. He's not getting a promotion out of this. He's not getting a a medal for valor for delivering the mail extra hard. Uh, it's like it's you know I could I could hurt myself with all this paper. I just sergeant like I can't read this. Like where does this go? Uh, I don't know. Nothing really works all that well when you bring in the military to do something that they're not really optimized. Well, to. you can look at Venezuela. I mean, they've effectively done that for food, uh, and people are starving. It's I, I, I'm not trying to be libertarian and, and knee jerk, you know, react against the military being uh, unable to do things. I mean, that's not their job. I mean, their job is basically to, to kill people, and so when they're brought in as sort of this civilian. Uh, mediation force i mean i don't really blame them it's just it's not really a functional a long-term functional solution to the uh, society's problems so you would expect to have some hiccups like this yeah and i mean it's it's not that they can't literally do things like air traffic control and uh delivering the mail like there's a literally military units you you uh, goddamn units not unions, military units that do effectively air traffic control and delivering the mail. But there's only so many of those guys to go around and they're busy doing that in the military context where that's what they're trying to do. If you just essentially redraft some guy, it's not going to work that well, uh, regardless of the kind of circumstances. So, the the Teamsters, the UK Teamsters, the UK equivalent of Teamsters are on strike. They draw up a plan to uh, declare a state of emergency and basically, you know, have the shit fully get the uh, hit the fan. Uh, 
people are now starting to get really pissed because this is affecting every bit of local infrastructure. The local farmers can't get feed uh, in uh, Hull, I believe, Kingston-upon-Hull, uh, which is a, a port um, kind of in uh, northern England. Uh, they uh, they take their, their dead livestock and dump them outside the union office uh, as sort of a protest, like, guys, can I please get my feed through? And eventually uh, they uh, kind of... Uh, they kind of uh, come to a consensus where they get a 20% raise. So now we've completely blown through the envelope. And at this point, it's just a question of who's going to give in exactly when. Uh, but this is when we, uh, we hit the, uh, the kind of real, uh, real mess of the matter. There's a lot of uh, people that kind of just have all of these multiplicative uh, wildcat strikes. You have uh, ambulance drivers going on strike, which is a core WTF uh, moment uh, where 911 calls aren't being, or I think it's in UK, it's a 999. It's weird. Everything's different there. It's like one digit is the same, but the rest are different. Uh, it seems like it'd be easy to accidentally dial that. You have the uh, the railway uh, workers uh, go on strike. Uh, you have the nurses go on strike. You have the grave diggers go on strike. Uh, so they're no longer burying bodies in Liverpool, and they have to rent out uh, some warehouse space to store all of the uh, store all of the bodies, which gives some great tabloid headlines. This well, is another weird they UK talking thing. Talking about disposal at sea. I mean, this is in the yeah. They're like, well, well, you know, we can just uh, do them Bin Laden slash Al Baghdadi style. <laughs> but, <laughs> but uh, they became household names. The British knew it. Yeah. Well, even uh, even the firefighters union apparently just stopped deciding to go to work. And yeah, it's like fuck strike, it. Which... It's like literally everybody else. This is this is a formative consensus. Literally everybody else is getting what's coming to them like give me what is coming to me now so i'm, I'm I, just I, not showing up one of the, one of the statistics that i managed to find in some kind of brief research for this was that uh, during you know in the run up to the winter of discontent itself so let's say from 1970 to about 1977 due to all the mass strikes uh, there was about 21.9 million uh, work days lost or something like that in, in effect. If you total up all the strike between all the various um, UK citizens at the time. From, <clears throat> from 78 to 79, that went up to 24, nearly 25 million workdays lost. Um, so the winter of discontent itself was not you know, as bad as, just from that quantitative standpoint, as... Uh, the 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 I don't know the let's say seven almost eight years preceding it, but it was certainly terrible. Like it, it's, those it's those seven years and it's up noticeable it created yeah it created the economic crisis and the, and the political crisis of seventy eight to seventy nine. 
it, it was, you know, it really is probably from an economic uh, and, and uh, economic standpoint, especially from this idea of labor productivity and also just assurance of public infrastructure and public uh, services infrastructure. One of the worst decades in any modern economy. The, you know, I can I can maybe point to like France in the late 60s as being somewhat comparable. Um, but it really doesn't come close to the absolute turmoil the British economy was in just due to the fact that people refused to go to work um, for various reasons over the course of an entire decade. Yeah, it's it's sort of the capstone. It's it's a, a shelling point, if you will, uh, where people realize things have just fundamentally become unmanageable here. It's just humiliation after humiliation. There's not a war that's being fought. There's not an empire that's being secured. It's it's just a shit show. So after all of these strikes or you know, concurrently with uh, more and more strikes, the government essentially gives up and uh, submits uh, to the uh, the trade un- trades union council uh a uh, a new agreement that's essentially all right we give up uh which is a little bit beside the point because at this point these are mostly wildcat strikes these are just everybody wanting theirs immediately uh, there's no dictation from the top down that is possible at this point um but nonetheless they sort of uh give up at this point there's a uh <laughs> there's an election that's called um a a vote of uh, no confidence uh, i believe um is the the inciting uh the inciting moment um and it's interesting this is one of the first instances in uh uk uh history of like a major advertising agency uh, Sachi and Sachi, or Sachi and Sachi. I'm not sure how that's actually. It's, uh, it's Sachi and Sachi. They're yeah. uh, they're very very um, powerful, especially within the uh, sort of West Coast um, advertising and marketing industry. Um, yeah, they're they're very well known. If you're if you're ever if you're even lightly associated with that field. You will definitely hear Sachi and Sachi at some point, and they're massive. They have hundreds of people in multiple, you know, in multiple cities, um, in each city that they're based in around the world. And it's uh, to, to this day, it's an incredibly powerful advertising firm. So they uh, they are contracted by the Conservative Party, which for the last uh, four years out of power. This is another weird thing about. Um, British politics, parties have leaders and structures, even and actually, especially when they're out of power. It's usually when they're in power that the claws really come out. But when they're out of power, even, they still have um, what they refer to as the shadow MP, shadow minister of whatever. Shadow government. Well, yeah, we, we call it that, but yeah, no, you're right. Yeah. It's. All of the okay. yeah, not not shadow governments in the uh, the Napolitano uh, or Anthony Napoleon Napolitano Napolitano uh, yeah. shadow men. 
uh, not not in the Alex Jones sense, uh, but uh, in the sense of if we were to be elected, you know what we're getting. You have a white paper. Uh, here is a here's the leader of our party. He or she, in this case, um, is going to be our PM. This is going to be our defense policy. This is the guy who's going to be our minister of defense, et cetera, et cetera. Um, which provides a level of uh, kind of you get what you pay for um, that you do not have in American politics. Um, but anyway, Margaret Thatcher has been the leader of the conservative party for uh, like four years now. Um, and uh, she contracts with the Saatchi and Saatchi firm uh, who comes up with the, uh, the brilliant slogan, uh, labor is not working. Uh, labor is not working isn't working labor um they say yeah you've gotta you've gotta put the u in there um but uh it's basically the same thing as far as i understand it uh but it's a pretty cool campaign i mean this is uh a lot of the kind of pop history of this uh emphasizes the the marketing angle i'm sure played up uh itself by the marketing people uh themselves um, it's a pretty nifty uh, design. It's got a real 70s flair to it with the uh, the nice hand cropping uh, there if you look at the, uh, the poster. Um, but it's really not hard to see kind of how, uh, how this shakes out. Margaret Thatcher runs on a, uh, a platform of significantly curbing the power of the uh, the labor unions to strike, particularly uh, requiring a vote of their uh, of their membership um, in order to have a legal strike by that labor union. I was a little bit surprised that that was not actually a uh, requirement, uh, sort of ab initio, that you could just have a strike without uh, an actual vote to kind of uh, give uh, give the vox populi to that. Um, but nevertheless, uh, they sort of capitalize on, uh, the, the chaos, uh, created by, uh, the, um, these various, uh, industries sort of all going to shit at the same time and end up winning the, uh, winning the election in one of the biggest, uh, electoral swings, uh, in terms of, uh, you know, shift from one party to another, uh, since the, uh, the 1946 uh, election that tossed out, uh, Winston Churchill. So she's now in power. The end. Everything is great now. Thatcherism. How how much of her win had to do? Because I don't know how they do campaigning in the UK compared to in the US for the prime minister. Is it really rare that you have someone as uh, outwardly charismatic as Thatcher to take the center stage and be kind of the representative of the party? Or is really the party is just running and then they just select some loyalist and within the party that gets appointed and there's not really a like campaigning like we have in the u.s for the individual it's kind of a combination it's definitely not as personality driven i mean you can look at the the last few uh british prime ministers and like oof 
Yeah, like, where did Victoria May even come from? I mean, like, so they just randomly, like, not randomly, they, they chose her to yeah. basically no, there's fall asleep on of... Brexit, but it was, you know, in, in the case of Thatcher, I mean, we've got something else here. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, personality certainly plays a part in it, but, I mean, the, because the, you cannot become the like prime minister isn't something that you vote for a you know there's this whole like formalized legal um procedure where uh you win an election and then the the queen requests that you form a government uh, you don't request of the queen, of course. That would be presumptuous. The queen requests that you form a government. And you're like, ah, well, uh, because I'm in control of the party that uh, won the, the last election, I would be happy to form a government for Her Majesty. Um, and so you form a government, and she's like, ah, jolly good. You're the prime minister now. Uh, I look forward to your sage advice um, so that I can properly uh, govern my kingdom. Uh, rule my kingdom, not govern. Rule, not govern. Uh, so, <laughs> I mean, you have to have some amount of charisma, I guess, in order to seize control of a major political party in the UK or even a minor political party. Uh, certainly somebody that has just absolutely nothing going for them would presumably not be able to make the sort of interpersonal connections required in order to secure that. Like it's just a miniature election, right? Like it, there's a lot of people interested in the job. And if you can lay out the case that you have a compelling vision for what you're doing and, you know, kind of demonstrate that you have the ability to deliver that, both of which have elements of charisma behind them then you're going to have a better chance of it than somebody that doesn't. But at the point at which you've won a leadership of one of those parties, uh, you know, by sheer force of personality, I don't know that you're able to thus deliver a general election win. That's much more about the contrast between what the two parties because I mean, really effectively it is a two-party system there's you know the liberals and the the scottish national party and all sorts of weird guys but uh effectively your two main contenders are labor and the conservative party well, they have the tories and, don't they have like labor or liberal democrats yeah, the, the or tories are just that conservative party they're synonymous oh i thought they were uh, separate okay now there's there's the liberals are distinct from labor. The liberals are kind of weird. They're like quasi Scottish, quasi liberal, I guess. Everything's everything's just kind of a little bit mirror imaged over there. And then you've got like you know plaid Simru or whatever. They're like Welsh nationalists, the Scottish nationalists. You've got uh, uh, Sinn Fein. Uh, I don't know. I think that's that's most of the ones that are actually represented. Remember what Nick Griffin, when we asked him about the the Liberal Democrats, like what exactly do they do? And he he basically said that they don't really serve any purpose, and especially nowadays, and they've never really served much for a purpose, and they've always just been a party that sort of lives in the margins, 
of Tories and uh, and Labour in, in the sort of modern British era. Yeah, they don't really seem to have a constituency per se. But as far as charisma goes, I don't think that it actually counts for much when you're talking about general election. It's uh, the selection happens so much further down that it's not like you're going to wake up one morning with a bright idea and be able to get it into your policy. Because, I mean, it's not just a kind of inter-party competition that causes your government to fall. Uh, like James Callaghan, uh, who is the prime minister during the uh, winter of discontent, um, I don't believe that he ever won a uh, general election. It was uh, the uh, the previous uh, the previous uh, labor uh, prime minister who is displaced um, during a like an, an internal uh, party vote. Uh, yeah, Harold Wilson. Um, Harold Wilson uh, was uh, kicked out by the party itself, I believe, uh, and or uh, he uh, he resigned, I guess, as prime minister, uh, and was replaced by uh, this uh, this Callaghan fellow. Um, so, like, Callan was kind of the, you know, Gerald Ford, I guess, of, uh, of the UK. Um, they're even roughly contemporaneous. Uh, he, uh, he, he was not required to be some grand personality. He was required to, uh, have the confidence of the political party, which, recursively had the confidence of the uh, the British public from winning the previous election. So Margaret Thatcher is elected. She uh, she sets about to essentially destroy uh, the political power of labor, uh, labor in the uh, the United Kingdom. She's mostly successful. That could probably be its own show, uh, but suffice to say, she uh, she enacts a lot of rate labor "quote unquote" reforms that severely limit their uh, ability to strike in the manner that they did throughout the seventies. She denationalizes a bunch of industries. She closes a bunch of uh, mines, for instance. There is a lot of people out of work. Economy is doing fine. Thatcher, Reagan, Heritage Foundation. It's all good stuff. But that should be probably another show. Well, I guess I, I don't have anything more to add. I mean, I was probably going to say that um, you know some of the, the strikes that happened around the coal mines and things like that during the Thatcher era were pretty damn contentious. It wasn't just that oh, everything yeah, was fine. Brutal. Brutal. Yeah, I mean, when, when when we say that, like, she crushed the power of labor, I mean, it was a, it was an extremely, like, at that point, labor really realized that it was in kind of a fight for uh, survival, which it ultimately lost. Like, British labor uh, union membership, I was wrong uh, before, I said 17, it's actually uh, 13 million out of a population of, like, 58 million and that's like men, women, and children in 1979. That was the absolute peak 
of uh, British uh, labor uh, membership. And the last figure that I have now is uh, uh, less than 6 million out of a population that's substantially higher. Yeah, so for a country that size, I mean, you got to imagine, what, 30 million are in the workforce? So over half are unionized, roughly? I mean, yeah, in the United I mean, States, you know, huge. we only got up to, what, 30% at our peak uh, in the 40s or 50s, if I recall yeah. correctly. So that I mean, a substantial 22% of your like absolute population and then deduct children, people who just don't feel like working and women who don't have to. Uh, yeah. Versus like, I mean, the current UK population, I mean, it's, uh, it's what, like double? Uh, I guess not. Um, no, but it's like 80 million, maybe. Of, less than one out of 10. Um, in uh, in absolute population terms, so I mean it's in proportional terms it's cratered. It's on the downswing and probably ends up consolidating uh, to a similar situation as the U.S., where there's a few industries that have kind of uh, semi symbiotic relationships with their unions, um, like some of the uh, some of the automakers. Uh, but particularly the uh, the government employment uh, section, uh, but most of it ends up uh, kind of falling by the the wayside, or uh, you know whatever the kind of more active uh, version is of that. The thing that really strikes through in this, and I hope we can find some outro music to capture the mood. UK seventies sucked a lot, like significantly more than the current US does. You can, uh, I mean, they had a, even at the time, a significantly more homogenous uh, population than the U.S. does currently, uh, which helps a lot. And they did have these kind of social structures around things like political party and trade unions, uh, even things like civic organizations were uh, much more uh, prominent than the U.S. currently. But despite these kind of depths of, uh, of uh, you know, the, the, the cold winter of their discontent, I guess, uh, there was never actually a, a significant risk of, like, Mexico or Venezuela-style social breakdown. There is this one quote from Callaghan um, uh, in the mid-70s that he worried that uh, if these labor problems go on, it could lead to a breakdown in democracy. It's unclear what he meant by that, but seems like bullshit. The United Kingdom was never even close to having the, the levels of civil strife that they had had um, just roughly um, prior um, labor, labor struggles in the 1910s, for instance. So it seems like people are able to absorb a lot of uh, material and economic punishments um, without sort of uh, defraying from the ballot box as long as the ballot box uh, is actually an option. Like Margaret Thatcher was a pretty, pretty sharp uh, divergence in UK politics. The, uh, the shift from that kind of uh, post-war consensus of let's all have nice things 
to the Milton Friedman-esque, like, well, actually, the market decides if you should have nice things. And if you can't afford nice things, then maybe you shouldn't have nice things. It's more for the rest of us. That That's a pretty drastic shift, but that's something that people were willing to make because of their confidence in their choice of that option actually resulting in a concrete, measurable improvement in their lives. I mean, if we try to compare that situation to the U.S., like we attempted it to make uh, approximately as dramatic, if not more so, of a choice uh, in the figure of Donald Trump. And a lot of people, even at the time, uh, sort of lacked confidence that that would result in structural change to uh the United States governance or economy uh, or political structure. Uh, and those fears are sort of, have been more or less borne out. So without those kind of social safety valves of actually being able to have something like what parliamentary supremacy gives you, where elections have very serious, immediate and real consequences I don't know. Um, could we absorb something of the scale of the UK winter of discontent? 